Greetings, and thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 50. This week's poem is by Ada Limon, titled Instructions on Not Giving Up. I honestly haven't a clue where I first ran into it, although it originally comes from the Academy of American Poets Daily Poem a Day back in 2017. All I know is that it has been existing like a dozen others as a tab in my browser for a few months. It's been living there for so long because it's it's an easy poem to enjoy, I think, but not one that's easy in the details. You can get lost in them. Uh, there are so many rich visual images in here that it's it's easy to lose the thread of what the larger poem is doing. And I thought that would be engaging and fun and a little bit different than the narrative poems we've been doing lately. It's quite removed, actually, from the most recent poems we've been working. There is no narrative here outside of the annual transition from spring to winter. There is instead a portrait of the world as it changes and the suggestion of what we can learn from this change, the from nature's ability to move on from hurt, if we want to understand winter in that kind of human terms. Now, before we can join nature in that transition, however, we must return to In the Wash from Michael Devon, a poem that is not short on hurt by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and to help us with the reading and explore the analysis of my students and maybe entertain a few of their questions, poet Michael Devon has joined us for this episode. So thank you for being here, sir. Thanks for having me, Wes. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the poem, it's worth noting that, as I mentioned in the last episode, this is a poem that is plucked more or less from your life, correct? That is correct. Um, yep, uh, definitely formulated from life experiences and uh, trying to work with uh, elevating kind of the, the tension in that history. <laughs> okay. Uh, so where, where's the, the germ of this poem for you? What about the events you described led you to putting this down? Is there something where you're like, oh, okay, that's a poem. I know I got to start writing this. Well, I would say... I think initially there was this kind of generating subject of, yeah, just working through it myself of like these experiences, this kind of like insider outsider dynamic. And and my, in this poem in particular, I felt almost like a double outsider. So that kind of just kind of managing that sense of identity and being in a place where I could look back at how I saw myself in the past um, was a generating subject. But in my more recent writing, I started thinking um, that I didn't realize I was writing about race and class a lot of the time as well. So in kind of like putting the poem in its current forms, those were two subjects that came up in, in the reading of my own experiences. Okay, cool. Thank you. Before we get into the analysis my students do, I always start with the poem so we can give it a close listen and have it fresh in the mind. Would you mind giving us that reading, Michael? Yes, let me just pull the poem up. In the wash, arms deep, filth clad, toilet toil, working at the Ski Tahoe Resort, scrubbing this mess of spiders, disposing the cast-off suppositories, the tracks of geriatric indulgence. Work, where people don't know how to talk to you, where the other housekeepers won't trade Spanish with you because you're not Latino enough to American. Where one day you hear a voice from behind exclaim, no clean, and you turn around to a white man waving his arms pleading, no, no clean, we don't need no clean. Where you can't speak, in, where you can't speak Spanish, can't speak English, where all you can say is, okay, work. 
where you throw up on the carpet after two turkey sandwiches, so hungover you pass out again before vacuuming them up, then see them again in the sink, the toilet too. You scrub up your mess alongside everyone else's, where your fingers fall endlessly, but never pick out all the dirt. Your Guatemalan parents who got you this job scold you for your failings as it might mean their jobs, their names already sullied. This job helps pay your parents' rent first, then your own. They made you work. At so young an age, a childhood stained across carpets of empty suites. You blame them for wasting wasteful time, earmarked for young weekends, prove them right, smoked in the units. Eight years drain like hard water. My hands reappear from rubber gloves. I enter any room here and I'm already gone. Very nice, thank you. So I'd like to get into some of the analysis that my students did. You are more than welcome to to dip and dodge any questions that are maybe too personal uh, because teenagers are, are unwilling to swerve away from the questions they have, which is a good thing, but sometimes we don't expect how personal they'll get. So start with, I think starting with the overall effect, a number of students had fairly specific ideas about what they thought this poem was doing overall. I have one student that says, this is a poem about how much time uh, should pass before working stiffs get to feel like humans again. Another says this is a poem about traumatic memories that demonstrate the pain that working can cause, that work can drown you in other people's needs and happiness, so that you forget to take care of yourself. And then this is specifically about the challenges faced by marginalized groups. They have all this work to do and that they also have all these other problems related to their race and possibly color that can go overlooked. How do you, how do you see those readings? Yeah, I think, yes, in terms of the working stiff, um, I think that is a great analysis of this poem in the sense that, um, like I said, and, and you said, uh, Wes, in the context for this poem, like, right, working at the community college um, at the same time, being a housekeeper at the same time, you're always working towards the promise of something, right? You're working hard at whatever mundane job you're working at in order to achieve those like larger goals to like get a degree. And even then the degree is only the promise of something. And so even then, like even after you get the degree, um, sometimes one can still feel those feelings. And on the other end, in terms of like just solely focusing on like the working class and those kinds of jobs, like one thing I wanted to highlight is like the people who are in those positions, like my parents making an appearance, they they are some of the people who work hardest and have the hardest jobs, but they get the least recognition and get paid the least. Um, so I think that's a good um, analysis to posit is like, after you put in all this work, undergo all this trauma, when can you start feeling like a normal person? Some other students, when they were thinking about what the overall work was doing, wasn't about the labor itself, but more about childhood. They, uh, as teenagers, they definitely have these connections to being young and having expectations placed on them. So a couple of them related to this bigger idea uh, had ideas like this. So one said, this is a poem about the destructive after effects of working on a young man who lost his childhood, a childhood that's stained by the work that over time anyone can learn to loathe, basically. 
And along that line, a student says that he, this is a speaker who blames his parents for wasting time that he should have spent on adventures and discovering things. Definitely. So in that sense, uh, addressing like the teenager side and like this kind of like like these uh, earmarked, these wasting wasteful time earmarked for young weekends um, set of lines. Um, so on one end, I think that does go into this feeling of this sense of a loss of childhood through this work as, and I really like how that student said that, that could stain anybody and that anybody could learn to loathe. And in terms, I guess, of the, the reality, how it worked out, I, at that age, envisioned like this was the time like a like a thinking like a teenager who knew like when the timing of anything is like this these weekends in high school are the time when it is my time to be cool and to meet people i'd like to date and to like go have fun with my friends on the party while i'm working hard at school all week and then i just go to housekeep because i'm told i have to so in that sense like there's there's a lot of like bitterness at that time for sure feeling that towards my parents in terms i guess of the what i was trying to do with craft is i was trying to be a little ironic with that line like you blame them for wasting wasteful time because in retrospect those weekends were not as better as any time I see to accomplish those social strata that I wanted to accomplish. I would have just needed to channel that energy in different ways. And so we see how that misdirected energy manifests itself, right, with like the vacuum to turkey sandwiches and such um, that come out of that. So in terms of like the actual history, yes, there was a sense of bitterness and a sense of loss, but in terms of the craft and the poem, it is trying to be like wry and ironic like you you had saved those weekends and you proved them that they were right to make you try to work to show you some sort of responsibility because obviously you didn't have that <laughs> yeah so they're not just they're not wasted weekends or they're, they're weekends that would have been wasted and so the idea of wasting is kind of almost absurd as a result uh and the relationships uh, are depicted in this were frequently a focus of their analysis actually uh, students noted that there was a, an unhealthy workplace and maybe unhealthy relationship with family. And there are a few lines, in fact, that they came back to frequently. Uh, things like cleaning up your mess alongside everyone else's. And then the line about picking out the dirt, but never getting it all out from under the fingers. And students actually saw that as maybe a kind of metaphor where no matter how much you clean, you're never actually recognized for the good work that you've done. There's always something that feels like it hasn't been addressed by those other people who are placing demands on you. Is that a fair reading of those lines? Yeah, I love that um, that reading of those lines, especially kind of on that that more literary level. It's like no matter how hard you're you're working towards something or at something, there's like this this feeling that you're never like approaching what you want to approach. So I definitely like that reading. And um, yes, I think following up on that line, it does speak kind of to like the literary significance further in that like your your fingers, your like tools from which you approach the world, um, they're just permanently stained like with mm -hmm. these memories and these traumas. And a lot of it does come from like dysfunctional workplaces, right? So there's like you said, the these kinds of different interactions with different characters, right? So there's the pool of the parents on the speaker. There is the pool of the expectations of the workplace to just keep cleaning while trying to do so um, in, in a damaged way, like being hung over. Uh, 
mug with due to compounded trauma. And um, there's a pool of the um, guests who are there who are like um, mostly like upper class wealthy people living and staying in Tahoe. So on that end, yes, I think it does speak uh, to how things are already hard enough and there's always additional things to complicate the situation. <laughs> and then related, so you have these pressures to meet the demands of other people and you're trying to and failing to do the things that they really want from you. And a student notes that this is actually compounded because your parents are brought up in this as not just a source of expectation, but a, as a financial demand. So it's not only that you failing is maybe... Uh, insulting or embarrassing to them, but also there's a financial cost that your failure becomes their failure. That's a pretty high burden of stress for a young person. How old were you, do you think, when you first started feeling that stress? Um, Probably like a year into the job, like being 17, being like, okay, well, I obviously don't like this kind of work and I wish I weren't here. And my sister is also working there who's four years older than me. She has also been working there since she's 16 and helping to support the family. So just kind of carrying on that tradition. And so, yes, uh, feeling that and feeling that stress and the burden of like, it's like a sense of not being able to escape because you're like, okay, I need to stay here in this job to help my family. But then like as these eight, like eight years start to pass one by one, it's kind of whirling down the drain. It just starts to like all this pressure starts to compound further and manifest in these um, unhealthy ways where neither goal is being met, where the speaker is not happy about working in the job and really they're hurting the family more than they're helping the family. And so with how sloppy and a hot mess the speaker is, that of course is definitely reflecting poorly on the speaker's parents. Um, and in of course, historical context, my dad was my supervisor. So of course I look like the boss's son, <laughs> exactly. So, so and again, that picks out some of the pressure from the other coworkers, like looking at you, like what's, up, what's the deal with this guy, obviously he shouldn't be here for, for any number of their own <laughs> observations and reasons coming to the, that same conclusion as well. As you're talking about this feeling of not belonging, a, a student describes what sounds like you'd agree with by saying that the speaker is in an identity limbo uh, and doesn't ac accurately have a, a space that describes them one way or the other. So as a, as a result, as a person, they are displaced, which sounds very much like what you were describing just then. And then we also have another that notes that because of this kind of displacement and this inability of the people around them to speak to them, they don't get to speak in any language but obeying because we only hear you say, okay, that's all you get to say. And that really kind of speaks not only to the feeling of feeling like an outsider, but also to just the disempowerment inside of this poem. Mm -hmm. I love um, those analyses. Um, yeah, I think um, this idea of identity and limbo is like critical. And I think that manifests itself in like these negative behaviors, like smoking in the units, um, being hung over at work and like throwing up wherever you may care because you know you're cleaning the whole unit any anyway. Um, and um, and I guess like that might be one of the themes of this is like we sp spoke about earlier, some of the, the readings were of, of concern for the speaker. 
And I think like that is like the underlying concern is like this narrator doesn't know who they are and it's massive men and they can't communicating and it's manifesting in negative ways, right? Because like with alcohol, I think that can sometimes feel like a release from that because with alcohol, then one gets into a state where they feel like a sense of false liberation and essentially like that starts to feel better and better but it also starts to compound more with like the problems it brings into everyday life and initially where maybe it may have been a tool of like socializing it then becomes like a crutch and then essentially of course with those kinds of issues one can just stop drinking socially and just start drinking alone and then the whole like initial purpose of communicating through alcohol is defeated and this narrator is even further in embedded in this limbo not knowing where they are it's it's interesting that you meant the social aspect of drinking that adults can sometimes enjoy the teenagers think they're enjoying but usually they're really just abusing themselves um yeah. but i find that really interesting because one of the students actually had a really interesting read cuz uh you you mentioned that we see uh this younger version of you kind of paying the price and the throwing up and the cleaning up and all that kind of stuff um, for those indulgences. Uh, but this student had to say uh, that uh, the speaker throws up uh, and then it has to scrub up his mess along with everyone else's and kind of suggested that there's almost a kind of unity that's happening here where he is connecting to the guests of this hotel that refuse to acknowledge him in human terms but he's doing it through his labor and in a way that's like not personal and like not really him, but it's kind of in a really depressing way, the closest you can get. Yes. I love um, that analysis. Um, yes. Yeah, so starting off with this idea of dissociation, um, I, I love that um, kind of introduction of that concept into this poem because um, when one is vomiting, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, right? Like your body is just kind of like trying to react to, to save itself while your mind is just kind of st stuck in the vessel. And so like you're just... Um, uh, vomiting and then like on another metatextual level right something's coming out of you um, and going into the yeah. ground and so i guess that leads into that second analysis is like trying to approach the guest and that is like a great um sense uh, of analysis in in that um right this speaker is obviously never going to be able to afford to stay in these units like many working class workers in their context do they're doing all these work on these really fancy places because like these are some of the most important kind of workers that there are um but they are never able to enjoy like the fruits of their labors um they just get to view it and so yes the like embedding oneself into the carpet is like such a great analysis of like trying to approach this world because a part of you is in there. So I love that. Yeah. And I like your note about this, the out of bodiness of vomiting, because I don't know that there's any more automatic response than that. Like you stop being a functional human being. You're just like a biological and mechanical response to something that's wrong. Which, given that this is a poem that's kind of about dehumanization, my goodness. Uh, I had a student who used an interesting phrase when he was talking about this. When your coworkers were describing you as too American to engage with, it's as though, according to a student, that you had been whitewashed. Which I think is a really interesting term because it has connotative and literal meanings that are relevant here. Literally, to whitewash is to paint over something, to remove 
the thing that is like the mistake or that is the that is not preferred i suppose but we also have like the cultural whitewashing where we see wider actors and wider cultural figures taking on and maybe taking over the cultural spaces of others what do you think of the term whitewashing as it relates to the accusal that you are becoming to american yeah that is um such a great consideration and i think that happens within communities like i hear this discourse often like you know speaking from my own experience and having this own experiences like other first generation americans for example uh, from latin american countries like who maybe had more communication with their parents are like very fluent in spanish often at a young age now uh, me at this young age i was not yet fluent because i was like rejecting that side of it and i guess that plays into this idea of whitewashing is like trying to be cool, trying to fit in, in my mind at the time, seeing what I thought the cultural and like ethnic winners were like the Anglo culture and Anglo people, I'm saying like, I need to be more like them. So I'm not going to try to speak Spanish. So growing up, I would always speak English to my parents and they would speak Spanish to me. And of course it wasn't until college where I was like, well, I should, you know, begin to embrace who I am, learn to be biliterate and bilingual fluently, which, which I did achieve. Um, and, um, and so in the sense of um, going back to this idea of communities within themselves, um, kind of negatively self policing cultural expectations is like often like for example in my experience another latino american might be like well why can't you speak spanish that that well you're not you're not latino enough because How dare you, you. Communicate. <laughs> yeah kind of exactly and i've heard that with other cultures as well like why aren't you doing xyz in terms of what our cultural expectations are why don't you like this kind of music why is your skin a little lighter why do you do your hair like this um so there's like this intercultural whitewashing that speaks to um that analysis brought up of the housekeeper saying like oh you you are not guatemalan or mexican you are american and you obviously got something going on where you don't want to try to speak spanish or like you're just you're too good you think you're too good to communicate with us where it wasn't that it was just like i can't communicate and then on the other end of um the individual um who is not part of the dominant culture trying to assimilate and in that sense whitewash themselves which which you actually describe yourself in terms of not trying to speak english as much and we were talking earlier about wanting to have a freer more americanized childhood with more choice and things so it's a really complicated place to simultaneously feel like you're being excluded, but also to, it sounds like, own a little bit of the, the critiques against you. That's that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like this internalized hate, which happens all the time in mm -hmm. different cultures and genders and, and so forth. A few of my students expressed and shared some of their own experiences a little bit. Uh, one said, I have personally seen this kind of racial outcasting and experienced it myself. Uh, it can cause some to question who they are because of how other people perceive them, which can be highly damaging to the person. And another student said, I feel the same way with Dubon. I've struggled to relate to my Filipino side of my family. I can't speak much Tagalog. Uh, they say that the student talks about being distanced from the culture, not especially religious, not liking pork, which is like a main dish. And I noted uh, in those descriptions, some of those things like the pork 
or um, maybe not speaking a particular dialect or language could seem from the outside, from the, the more Americanized Anglo perspective as small things, but they're really embedded in culture. Yeah. Um, and so by, by like seen from the American side as small things, like you're trying to do like these little steps to assimilate. They're not like a big deal. You're just kind of like, that's just what you're doing. But on the other end, um, is that to say like that these, what might seem from like the traditional American culture that's like you said, as best as we can define that. Um, uh, while it might seem smaller on that end, on like the person's origin culture and kind of um, the community around that, they can seem like much bigger so yeah, I can definitely see that too. Um, and it's again, because like, you know, you don't know how something is until you experience it, right? And and of course, like in this case, it's brought to attention by like someone who is in a minority culture. So there's less people who can identify with that experience from like a larger cultural standpoint in being that in the United States in certain areas of the United States. And then even smaller, like going even more narrower in terms of like the first generation like American child not necessarily having that many other peers in that situation to which they can relate and so it can be very confusing in that sense because you're like well it's isolating too because you can feel like I'm the only one who feels like I'm supposed to be something on both ends and I'm not either of these things um, so that definitely can be very damaging and, and very um, isolating like I said and when you're presented like with these situations where people are expecting things out of you on both sides like in this poem the white man ex expecting the speaker to be like well, obviously you can't speak English, but you got something to do for me. Why aren't you doing it? And on the other end, the family or uh, cultural sides, like you have a duty to fulfill. Why aren't you fulfilling it? So that just brings into a lot of questions. So of course, definitely the challenge is like trying to negotiate within oneself, these uh, competing worlds. And you know, for me personally, essentially, I came to the conclusion that like, well, I'm not gonna change who I am where I come from. I do love my family. I like have a respect for my culture. I have a respect for like being a United States citizen. Like I really can only do the best to be myself and integrate the parts from both of those cultures that I think are the best of those cultures in, in a way that that works for me. So like for me, what that took was like feeling comfortable with my race, um, my culture, my skin color, my like appearance as like an ethnic person in contrast to that. And then, um, and then taking that linguistic journey to say like, okay, well I do. And that's for me because I love language. So for me, I was like, this is a big part of my identity. I love language. I should learn to speak fluently the language of, of my, of one side of my culture that I was missing before. In terms of your love of language, that also finds its way into being a poet and and playing around with the, the the sandbox of poetry, where my students had some very specific things I wanted to point to. Uh, a few were talking about the tone of this. Um, a student noted that despite these kind of pressures that are here, the tone that came off didn't feel necessarily angry so much as numb. Is that how you would characterize that voice? Yeah, I think that's a good estimation of description of tone. 
And of course, um, yeah, I would say maybe that's like the dominant tone is like this sense of resignation of numbness. But of course, as as we've seen in in like the different poems the students are reading, and other the readings we've all read or pieces of media, there's often like multi-tones, right? So I spoke to that, like blame them for wasting wasteful time. It's kind of like a wink and a nod to like being like, mm -hmm. yeah, obviously this is like a, a foolish endeavor. So it's this like tone of foolishness there. That's the the adult Michael kind of peeking in at the, at the moment there. Uh, and a, a student points to the very beginning of this thing so starts with the arms deep, filth clad toilet uh, toil. And a student described this as a, an example of a sedentin. So we have that serialized list without a conjunction in there. And they said that this feels like it's contributing to like a colder tone. Like there's not even room enough for conjunctions. We're just going to pile on the descriptions of the, and the things of it. Um, so kind of introduces the poem by being almost grammatically broken especially with the toilet toil like arms deep is a description of a like a it's adjectival uh filth clad adjectival toilet toil that's weirdly verbal so your first three phrases are like hey this is a poem about breaking a little bit i think that's a great linguistic analysis um and it makes me reflect um further too on that structure um, in terms of imagery, right? So the first line is like arms deep. And then with this ascendant and lack of conjunction, conjunctions, um, it is just going deeper. Like the commas are just taking the reader deeper into this, this toilet essentially <laughs> um, and, and going down into the rest of the poem with this speaker as they are like whirling before we get to those final two lines and the whirling kind of finishes. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned the imagery. A student said that this is a poem that uses graphic tactile imagery in particular to kind of emphasize the filth of the work. Uh, and it does as a result create a, not just the, the cold and numb of before, but also there's an exasperation of all the piling on happening here. Yeah, I think that's something I wanted to mention earlier um, that's left my mind is like, there's this sense of entropy. So like there's a sense of entropy um, in, in what we were just talking about with like, right, dirtiness and uh, like the piling up of things is like the definition of entropy. It's just like, if you don't, make effort to change something, it will just be overcome and overgrown. Um, and so there in terms of like the literal, the filth, the exasperation, and then on the other layers of like entropy, like, like we talked about with identity, it's like, it just starts piling on with the speaker making moves further towards destruction and empathy rather than trying to preserve and grow. So, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a great um, analysis of like this continually piling on and this resignation and exasperation. Uh, students also said that you were using condescending and, and belittling diction in here. And as a result, it makes this voice, the speaker here, one that's actually fairly easy to sympathize and maybe even empathize with, depending on how close the reader is to this kind of experience as well. And they also noted the the syntax, the kind of broken English of the white man with the no clean happening here. It is a wildly dehumanizing. And so in that way, we have pretty core building blocks of poetry and the word choice and the structures doing a lot of the, the emotional lifting 
to make this a voice that it's easy for a reader to to feel on the side of. Mm. Yeah, that is. Um... I, I really enjoyed that analysis in terms of like the different kinds of work structure and language can do. So, so like, so there's that emotional side, like you mentioned, like this idea of empathy and sympathy. There's how it looks on the page in terms of the syntax. It's like, it's like, right. It's kind of, I, I guess that's one thing craft wise. I was thinking, well, how do I put this on the page, this idea of broken English. And so that's why I, like I said, along this idea of the exclamation mark, because it's someone like demanding of you and kind of like half shouting because they, they think you don't understand. And so that creates like an image in itself as well. Right. And you turn around. So it's just like, kind of like this, this turn to see somebody and they just have their mouth wide open and putting out these part phrases that obviously you didn't need said so loudly. And, um, and in that way, right? I don't know why people think broken English in the first place is more effective than, than regular <laughs> communication, but yeah. um, that speaks to that larger cultural thing as well. I, I really appreciate uh, you spending so much of your time uh, with me today on a Saturday. Well, we went from morning to afternoon technically, <laughs> so we've been at it a while. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Wes. It's definitely a pleasure and appreciate um, all the students' questions and great analysis and the time and energy they took with my poem and um, really appreciated all your thoughtful questions and time and energy too and um, collaborating on this with me. So yeah, thank you all for this very wonderful experience. <laughs> Our next poem is Instructions on Not Giving Up by Ada Limon. This poem is another case of wanting something that answers the doom and gloom, the melancholy that sometimes finds its way into poetry, or at the very least, most frequently seems to find its way to the eyes and ears of those enjoying poetry. It isn't all sunshine and roses, but there is more optimism and joy here than in the victory or in the wash. Finding this joy requires looking for the big idea. There are so many specific visual details, it can be easy to really lose track of what really gets into the speaker of this poem. So, as you consider this poem, think closely on the big ideas. Trust your instinct. Then, when you sit down to write your response, use the word central or some version of it in that response. This is our secret passphrase. For the writing task, I want you to discuss how the poet uses a literary device of your choosing, but you must choose a literary device that requires an adjective before it. Examples are diction, imagery, tone, mood, and syntax. If you're going to write about these, you need to use a word that describes the qualities shared by the examples you'll be talking about. For in the wash, we heard some students uh, doing this already, such as when students said the poet uses condescending diction or an angry tone. It would have been fair to describe the poem as having an oppressive mood. Mood, by the way, is the overall atmosphere of the work. It's a little bit different from tone, which is the speaker's specific attitude towards what they're talking about. If you are exploring imagery, you can discuss the categories of imagery, visual, olfactory, tactile, all of those, as well as the descriptive types, which we heard when a student mentioned the graphic tactile imagery of the poem. 
Use any device you'd like, but be sure to get that adjective in there. We should never use just the names for the devices alone. Here's the poem. Instructions on Not Giving Up by Ada Limon. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy-colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains, it's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's baubles and trinkets, leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come, patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, a return to the strange idea of continuous living, despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine, then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm. I'll take it all. Students, be sure to use some form of the word central in your response, which is our secret passphrase, and use a literary device in your analysis that you can describe with an adjective. All our previous writing tasks are still great guidelines for strong writing, especially using a clear what and how in your claim. The others remain recommended as well, so consider including brief summaries, short or single word quotations, maybe a semicolon here or there. Avoid the word quote and use more than one quote in your sentences. Keep creating variety in your sentence structures and word choices. This is a poem that only has one stanza, so you're not going to be using any double slashes this time, just a single slash, which might happen quite frequently, as many of these lines are enjammed. This is where one line continues onto the next without any punctuation creating a pause at the end of the line. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two, and any evidence you use should be short, embedded smoothly into your sentences, and fully explained. And only reply to responses with real claims. I know it's not the writing task for this week, but if a student only attempts to summarize the poem, there likely isn't anything to agree or disagree with, really. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like our class to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 50 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent.